appreciate that was a, a little more upbeat sermon <laughs> than what I'm about to deliver. Um, this morning we continue our march uh, through the lectionary, through the summer season lectionary as we go through and explore the great narrative of King David. And today, again, we come to that famous passage of David and Bathsheba. And I take from my text this morning the fourth verse of the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel. So David sent messengers to fetch Bathsheba, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Please pray with me. Holy God, I pray that in these words to come, each person here may hear some word from you, so that we might all grow in faith in our journey with you. Amen. Bible has got some pretty real stuff in it. You have to do some serious editing to get it down to the PG version. Like you'd wear out more than a few red pens. Knowing the Bible as an adult, I'm somewhat amused when I remember those old Sunday school picture books that we had. Do you remember those? Maybe you had the same ones in your Sunday school. Depictions of largely white biblical characters with a soft, light, airbrushed look, uh, quality to the drawings, all designed to invoke the feelings of a warmed heart, even at age six. John Wesley would be happy. But the Bible, of course, has got so much more in it than that. And that's precisely why it has such enduring value. The Bible talks about humans. And, well, we're not all that great. Just take a look at the people to your right and to your left. See what I mean? (laughs) However... Even amidst the various realistic and morally questionable scenes in the Bible, of which there are plenty, our text for today, the story of David and Bathsheba, is on the outer rim of human morality, or in this case, immorality. Even by backtracking and trying to change the word would to wouldn't, you couldn't turn this text into something positive. For the one or two of you who might be unfamiliar with this text, allow me to quickly recount its unpleasant details. Our scene opens with the kingdom of Israel at war. The neighboring Ammonites had a new king, one who was not well disposed to David and Israel. While the Israelites marched out to meet this new threat, curiously, the king himself is not at the front. The text does not say why. Has David gotten too old for leading in combat? Has he become too self-satisfied to risk his own skin on behalf of his kingdom? Whatever the reason, David is at his palace and spies a gorgeous young woman bathing on a rooftop not far away. It was not uncommon to bathe on rooftops. There was no air conditioning back in those days. It was, of course, coolest in the inside of the house during the day, but at night, the rooftop became the most pleasant space in a home. Since David's palace is at the high point on Mount Zion, he could look down on the rooftops of his subjects. Aroused by the beauty of the woman bathing, David inquires who it is. Bathsheba, he's told daughter of Eliam, one of his elite warriors, and wife of Uriah, another of his elite. David orders his men to go get Bathsheba and bring her to him. Then he has intercourse with her. The text is quick to point out that Bathsheba just had her period, so there's no question of the paternity of the ensuing child. In the next line, we get Bathsheba's only statement. I am pregnant. Faced with the consequences of his adultery, David hatches a plan and orders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from the front where he is fighting for his people. 
When Uriah returns, David tries several times to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that David can pretend that the child is Uriah's and not David's. Each time, however, Uriah demurs, preferring the honorable route of sleeping with his fellow soldiers. It was, after all, the custom of the day for soldiers to refrain from sexual activity while on campaign. Failing to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, even after David gets him intentionally drunk, David then decides to order his general Joab to kill Uriah. He orders Joab to place Uriah at the front of the heaviest fighting and then pull back the troops, leaving Uriah alone with the enemy. Joab faithfully follows David's orders in the verses that follow our text this morning. To make the scene more dramatic, David has Uriah carry the very orders that seal his own fate. It's a powerful, gruesome narrative that shows the best of Hebrew storytelling. At the tensest tensest moments of the story, the author uses one verb after another after another to build the story in crescendos. And again, this is where the English translation doesn't quite do that justice. The action in the story all comes from David. There's little doubt that the blame for this falls entirely with him. Given how little we see about the thinking or emotions of Bathsheba and Uriah, some scholars have attempted to read between the lines. Apologists for David say that Bathsheba chose that time to bathe because she knew that David would be watching. It's a classic argument that the woman is to blame for sexual assault. But David, of course, has all the power in this story. When his men show up at Bathsheba's door or when she's alone with the king, does she really have much of a choice? Likewise, some interpreters have questioned how much Uriah knew about the adultery and David's motives. The scene with Bathsheba was no secret. David uses his minions to carry, about, to carry out his bidding. Surely rumors seeped around the palace of what had transpired. Did Uriah know? Much like, much like with Bathsheba, even if he did know, what could he do? What's remarkable about this scene is that it marks the, the turning point in the narrative of David. This is the point after which David's rule begins to deteriorate. After David's adultery with Bathsheba and the cover-up, which leaves one of his elite soldiers dead, things begin to go wrong for David. The implication of this narrative arc is clear. For the authors of 1 and 2 Samuel, the morality of leaders matters. The morality of leaders affects their actions and their worldview. We need to care about morality, not just public policy, and we need to be aware of the dangers, the potential toxicity of power. Abused power affects or infects the whole body politic. When a leader abuses his power, it sets the tone for the whole group. Others see what's going on and then assume that bad behavior is okay. Abuse proliferates. Several years ago, when I was in Nigeria, I had the opportunities to see this firsthand. For decades, particularly since the 1970s, the leaders of Nigeria have been skimming money from the oil revenue to benefit their own pocketbook. The scale of this corruption is mind-boggling. Whoever is in power uses that power to rich himself and his cronies. I was there during the run-up to a hotly contested political election, and I remember asking people what policies the different political parties offered. I had quite lengthy conversations about this, trying to figure it out. And it turns out that there were virtually no policy differences between the two major parties. It came down to who got the spoils of the oil revenue. You supported the candidate who could help you out. Each candidate ran on a platform of eliminating corruption. And then when that candidate got to power, the corruption continued. This infected not only the highest offices in the land, but also local government. There were bribes and payoffs from top to bottom. 
American and other international oil workers had to do the best they could in the climate. I recall talking with one Scottish worker who, after 20 years, had had enough. Everyone who spends time in Nigeria could tell you, could tell you their own stories of the corruption that they saw. And it all starts at the top, just like it does with King David. Given our current situation in the U.S., this text could not have any more relevance. The past two years saw the truly remarkable hashtag MeToo movement, sparked by revelations that Harvey Weinstein, the legendary Hollywood producer, had routinely and for years used his power, much like David, to force women into sex or to face the consequences for their careers. For years, people around Weinstein knew what was happening, but chose to be silent because they were afraid of Weinstein's incredible power in the industry. It was simply the way things worked. When those at the top abused their powers, it became accepted to turn a blind eye. Then an inspiring thing happened. Women and some men began to post publicly online that they too had been victims of sexual assault. Crimes and immoral conduct that had lain in the shadows for years began to emerge. One public figure after another was exposed to someone who had used his power to gain sexual favors. The most egregious example of this came out during the 2016 presidential campaign, when a recording of the now President of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, came to light in which he boasted of how he used his power regularly to have sex and sexual conduct with women. It was difficult to listen to that recording and not be repulsed by his crudeness and immorality. It was 2 Samuel 11 in a modern-day context, if there ever was one. Mind you, this is not a statement about politics. Men of power of both parties, including the longest-serving Democrat and the House of Representatives, were exposed for these abuses of power. The issue at hand was not only politics or sex, but power itself and the pitfalls of power. As Lord Acton famously wrote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The nature of the corruption of power varies with the individual in the situation. People take advantage of power to bully others and berate them, knowing that the consequences of their actions will never likely fall to them. People use their power to get advantages for their children. People use their power to roll back environmental protections, which harm the health of others, but bring more profit to the person in power. We see it again and again. The abuse of power is one of the biggest threats to our society. It was back in King David's day, and it remains so today. Just a couple weeks ago, the Treasury Department ruled that organizations, whether they be the NRA or a union, no longer need to disclose their donors who make contributions over $5,000. It was about as blatant an attempt to get more dark money into politics as I have ever seen. Why would you want to hide your name and your contributions? So you can exercise power for your own ends without having to answer for it. I could name a half dozen other examples of the abuse of power and its consequences, many of them here in Houston. Famously, the firm Brown and Root made its money through buying off Lyndon Johnson and receiving billions in government contracts. I have to admit, it's pretty easy to name abuses of power that echo King David in 2 Samuel 11. It's easy to get all worked up, become angry and indignant. Those people are abusing their power, those corrupt business contractors, those corrupt government officials, those Hollywood producers. What could I like more than sitting back and tossing pot shots at others? It's a long-standing human pastime. But the thing about Scripture is that it's meant for us. It's intended to be a living text. We here in this space don't have the power of a Donald Trump or a Harvey Weinstein or a King David. Therefore, we can critique those in power who abuse it and at the same time be blind to the power that we have and what issues might come with that. Abraham Lincoln once wrote, Nearly all men could stand adversity, 
But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. The trouble for us is that we have more power than we assume. And since we don't often see our own power, we don't see how it can be abused either. Here are relatively well-educated people. That education carries with it a certain amount of power. Thought carefully about it, you can come up with examples of that in your own head. Those of us who are men have the power that comes with that. Those of us who are white have the power that comes with that. Being American has its own power and privileges, as does our wealth, however much it might be. We have far more power than we acknowledge. How often do we use that power realizing it? I have to say this question has particular resonance for me as a clergy person. Even though oftentimes I might not like to admit it, being a clergy person does carry with it certain power. People view me in a different way once they find out what I do. They give me, in my opinions, more deference since I'm a clergy person. If I ever had questions about the power of being a clergy person, those questions are dispelled the moment that I choose to wear my clergy collar. If any of you are curious about this, I I would recommend trying it out and seeing what happens. (laughs) I remember wearing it last year and walking into a grocery store, and a woman immediately came up to me and started talking about her life in very revealing ways. I did my best to be polite. I was definitely not expecting that reaction. All I wanted was some turkey cold cuts, but, but there it was. Now, I can use that power to do good, but it can also be abused. The first step of avoiding abuse is to acknowledge that it's there. Again, I recall when I was in Nigeria, my race and nationality had tremendous power. And it was so dramatic in that different context to be unsettling. It hadn't really occurred to me beforehand because here in the States, I'm used to the assumptions that my position, my race, uh, might come with it. But as an American, over in Nigeria, people were wary of doing anything wrong around me. If they did, they could face potential consequences. I walked through the market in the center of Lagos and all through Victoria Island at night without a second thought. Once, several security people tried to harass me and steal my cell phone. To admit, it was intimidating to be confronted by someone in uniform armed with an AK-47. They were trying to use their power. I stood my ground while they threatened to arrest me if I didn't let them have my cell phone. Knowing the power I had as an American, however, I I dared them to arrest me, and I asked for their names. Once they realized I wouldn't back down, and once they thought of what might happen to them if they actually had followed through with their threats, they quickly gave me my cell phone back. As a white person in Nigeria, I had Nigerian women throwing themselves at me. That was by far the most disturbing aspect of my stay there. In every bar I entered, there were Nigerian women looking for a white man to take care of them. The various intersections of power and colonialism I witnessed were enough to write a doctoral dissertation. In Nigeria, the power dynamics were obvious. But here in Houston, we're so accustomed to them that we rarely notice our power. But it's there. And when we're unaware of our power, unreflective about it, it becomes subject to the toxicity of power. King David was so accustomed to his power that when he saw Bathsheba, he ordered his men to fetch her. Just like that. That's what kings do. They give orders and they are respected. Even after David arranged for the death of Uriah, he was oblivious to the extent of his crime. In the following chapter, 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan confronts David over his crimes. This is the text we'll read for next week. And if you recall, the way that David gets, the way that Nathan, the prophet, gets David to see his sins is by describing an analogy 
of a rich man and a poor man. David reacts indignantly over the abuse of power that the rich man engages in. It's only at that point when Nathan reveals that he was talking about David and Uriah. David, in spite of the horror and obvious immorality of his actions, only realized the depth of his own sin when Nathan was willing to call him out for it. When have you fallen into that same trap? When have you used the power that you have in ways that were not right? Regret it? Our story for today contains another lesson for us as well. Yes, we should look at King David and consider the dangers of power. It can be abused in ways we don't even realize. What if we're on the other side of that? What if we are someone who has to endure the toxicity of power? I tend to take the view that Uriah the Hittite knew what was going on. He must have known something was up when the king himself summoned him back from a pivotal battle at the front. He knew of David's past actions. He was aware of the dangers of power. Like other soldiers, Uriah must have been somewhat suspect of David remaining in Jerusalem rather than going out to the front. And when Uriah arrived at home, there were plenty of people to tell him what happened. His interactions with King David, interactions in which David's intent was very clear, Uriah could have gone, gone along with David and lay with his wife Bathsheba. He could have fulfilled David's plan, allowing him to think that he had gotten away with committing adultery and likely the rape of his wife. Everyone around him would have known the truth. He would have had to raise up a child as his own and be reminded of the violence done to Bathsheba every day. Uriah doesn't do that. Uriah resists David's plan. He resists David's plan by taking the moral high road and then letting that moral action judge David all the more. Uriah knew the score. He knew he didn't have any real power against David the king, but he could appeal to dignity and a higher moral order. This was the strategy of so many African Americans, both during the time of slavery and during the time of Jim Crow. Slaves would regularly have accidents in which they would break their farm implements and then play dumb, play the role of Sambo that appealed to their master's ignorance. During the civil rights movement, the brave civil rights activists in the South had no political power, no power with law enforcement, They set up to do the right thing, the type of action that highlighted the injustices of Jim Crow for all to see, just like Uriah. Didn't always work out. Many who engaged in those actions of civil disobedience did not harbor any illusions that their actions would change things. But it was a way of resisting the abuse of power. Similarly, women caught in abusive relationships have found countless ways to channel their own inner Uriah, methods of subtle resistance, when few, if any, real options existed. Some of you might feel powerless in the face of the abuse of power today. Sometimes there's very little we can do about those abuses. The corrupting nature of power is real. If we do find ourselves powerless in a political realm or a personal realm, we can take heart from the example of Uriah. We can, as Michelle Obama said, go high when they go low. We can continue to live our truth as best we can. The Bible is no cakewalk. It doesn't tell us about rosy stories of inspiration and love, or at least it doesn't tell us only about rosy stories and love. It lays out human nature, even its ugliest possible side. One reaction is to skip those passages, to glide over them because they're uncomfortable, or dismiss them as out of date. When we do that, we miss the chance to make a change, to call out the abuse of power, to stand up and say, me too. Power gets abused all the time. The question is, do we see it? 
as people of the book, we should insist that the example of Bathsheba and Uriah not be told in vain.